Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, and now, 20th Century Fox presents the greatest comedy event of the 20th century, Mel Brooks' Silent Movie. Starring Mel Brooks, Marty Feldman, Dom DeLuise, Sid Caesar. Bernadette Peters. And a few surprises. Burt Reynolds. James Kahn. Liza Minnelli. Anne Bancroft. Paul Newman. Silent Movie is outrageous, rip-roarious, and side-splitting, says Gene Shallot of NBC-TV. Silent Movie is the funniest comedy in 50 years, says Vernon Scott of UPI. Newsweek calls silent movie Mel Brooks' best film. And Time Magazine calls it inspired lunacy, funny without mercy. It's Mel's most magnificent madness, silent movie. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast. I am your host, Scott White. And I have a first-time guest. Whoa, everything okay? Why wouldn't it be? I, I just heard a giant thump on that end of the, on your end. Oh, I didn't even hear it. So, oh. I don't know, maybe it'll be some kind of delayed response where, like, I just keel over and die because someone hit me on the back of the head. I don't know. Uh, I have a first-time guest on this podcast, but she has been a guest several times on my other podcast, the Dan Aykroyd podcast. Yeah, so, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, 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 I have been on this podcast because I do the the commercials. No, and you know what? You have been on this. You you did at long last love. You have been on this podcast. Oh, hey, yeah, you're right. I have. I, yes, I blocked that movie out of my mind. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Miss Meredith Nudo. Yes, hello. Thank you, Scott. And I think we're going to do a movie that you enjoyed a lot more than Long Last Love. At Long it's, Last Love. It's a movie it, I enjoy more than a lot of movies. It's the Mel Brooks movie, Silent Movie. Woo! From 1976, starring Mel, Bo Mel Brooks, Marty Feldman, Dom DeLuise, Sid Caesar, and Bernadette Peters. With cameos by James Caan, Liza Minnelli. Marcel Marceau, Paul Newman, and Burt Reynolds. So and that's Anne why we're Van doing Croft. this movie. And, oh, you know, and and but I forgot Anne Van Anne Van Gogh. Yeah, yes. because because Mel Brooks is a wife guy. He is a wife guy. Mel Brooks and Anne were, were was a true love story in Hollywood, an unsung love people. story. They were a lovely, lovely couple. Now, how long have you been a Mel Brooks fan? Oh, most of my life. Actually, um, my dad introduced me to Young Frankenstein pretty early, and our library had copies of, of the the One Million Year Old Man, 
and things. So I watched a lot of Mel Brooks as a kid, but Young Frankenstein was always my favorite. So uh, I don't think I've seen his entire filmography, but I've seen most of it. I love Mel Brooks. I continue to love Mel Brooks. I love Mel Brooks too. His later movies sort of have a lot to be desired, but the you know when he first started out of the gate, just brilliant. You know, the producers, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Silent Movie. These are all just excellent, excellent movies. And the thing is, even if it's not the best thing he's ever, even even the movies that he puts out that aren't the best of what he has to offer are still very admirable in their ambitions and what they were trying to do. Right. One of my favorite movies of his is History of the World Part One. And I know that got slammed by critics and people didn't seem to like it, but I really enjoy that movie. I love History of the World Part One. And did you see that they're they're attempting to finally make part two? I have mixed feelings about that because the fact that there isn't a part two was part of the joke. At the same I, time, I believe most of the most of the original cast, besides Mel Brooks, is dead. Are dead. It, I. What would be the point? I. I mean, it still might be good. The the point is to probably put money in Mel Brooks's pocket, which I can't really uh, fault anyone for that. But we are not Better. talking about history of the worlds. We're talking about silent movie. Let's talk about was, silent movie. When, what is your first memories? Do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Or do you remember the first time you comprehended this movie? I mean, this was one of the later ones that I saw. So I don't think I saw this one until probably about college for the first time. And I remember thinking it was a lot of fun. And then in rewatching it, oh, hey, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's silly. And I love it for being so silly. Yeah, but I love silly. I love silly. A lot of people say, well, a movie like that couldn't be made today. And they say it because of the content, you know, the content. I don't think a, a movie like this could be made today because it is just so whimsical. And it's just so silly. I don't you know, think anybody would would want to put that much ever, effort in a movie that's just silly happy. It's a silly happy movie. I mean, they probably would if Mel Brooks was behind it, because by this point, he's been established as, you know, a comedic genius. Uh, the only other person who could probably get away with it is Taika Waititi. But I, that is actually a rant that I have about Mel Brooks's work. Content-wise, silent movie could absolutely be made today. But like you said, it would be too risky for a lot of studios. They don't want to necessarily put their money into something so niche. That would be the only reason why it couldn't be made. But content-wise, you would just need to make a couple of little tweaks here and there to be to update the humor. But it would still, I mean, so much of it still holds up. It just needs one or two little tweaks and it would it would fit today's um sensibilities just fine. Yes, you'd have to take out the F-word gags. Yeah. But that's that's all you would I mean you and probably a little bit uh with the way that the blind man is portrayed, but the joke itself still works because it it's not on the blind man, it's on the dogs. Mm -hmm. Uh it would just be a little a little tweak in how but the point it, it holds up very well. This sounds weird, but most silent movies hold up well because they are so simple and there's there's not a lot of convoluted plots. Like you watch a Buster Keaton movie and it's just him chasing a bad guy holding on to a train and that's 
that's very simple to follow and it's very exciting to watch even with no sound yeah yeah and see i think the reason why no one would want to make it now is because it silent movies aren't really uh fresh on anyone's mind so it would be satirizing something that's um that people wouldn't be familiar enough with the tropes it would be a movie made for movie nerds uh which would mean someone like a24 would probably distribute that um but past that, I it still felt very fresh to me. Like you said, a couple of jokes would have to be excised, um, like the a, a couple of the homophobic jokes. But that's it. That's really it. Well, okay. How about this? The gist of the story is Mel Brooks. He's 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 called he's called Mel Mel Fun in the movie, and he has written this. The movie takes place in 1976. So yeah. the movie takes place in modern day. And his idea, he brings this script to a studio and he says, why don't we make the first silent movie in 40 years? And the studio executive, Sid Caesar, they basically say, we'll do this if you can get all these big stars to do it. So the first half of the movie is him tracking down these big stars to be in his movie. And it's... Mel Brooks and Marty Feldman and Dom DeLuise. And they're just this trio. It's not explained where they come. It's not explained their relationship. It's not explained how they meet. They're just there. They're like the Three Stooges. Yeah, but they're you know, just... the thing is, it, it, it wouldn't work without that with that much backstory. It, it needs to be a very clean, breezy, unencumbered story for this to be for this to be pulled off and work. A any background on those three? like you said, would have convoluted the plot more. It's just simple. These three guys are making a movie and they know each other. Boom. That's it. And that's all the information we get. That's all the information we need. Now, Marty Feldman plays sort of a sort of a pervy, and he actually calls himself a pervert in the movie. Do you think they'd have to change his character to be less pervy? No. Okay. Because the thing is, here's the thing about Mel Brooks's humor. The joke was on the character being a perv. That, that's why it still works because the joke is not like the joke is not about like wow, look at this bitch who is who's not falling for the perv. The joke is on the perv as an asshole and a perv. That's why it works because he knows where to punch. What I love about this movie, and I've said this before, what? Did you just open a screen door? Yeah, I, I had to get my food. Okay. <laughs> it, it sounds like you're recording in a haunted house. <laughs> Who's to say I'm not? Okay. I can uh, record in a haunted house and open you, my door. <laughs> I love it when people make fun of themselves. I love it when people take the piss out of themselves. Yeah. So that's why I love this movie. And Mel Brooks does it, but all the guest stars at the time, 1976, these were the biggest stars in the world. And they all have fun with themselves. Mm -hmm. And I just love that. You go up so many steps in my book if you can make fun of yourself and not take yourself too seriously. Well, um, that's why I thought that uh, since this is relevant to the podcast, um, it's why I loved Burt Reynolds so much in this. <laughs> he made fun of himself so much. The fact that he's introduced like 
like grooming himself in the mirror and like, yeah, look at me, I'm a stud. And anytime there's a mirror nearby, he has to stop and look at it. It's so funny. Because they're looking for his house and there's just this mansion with this huge picture of Burt Reynolds out front. And it just says, Burt Reynolds. When we first see Burt Reynolds, he's taking a shower. And as you say, he's he's giving himself the eye in a mirror. And then all of a sudden, Dom DeLuise and Marty Feldman and Mel Brooks, who were all quote-unquote naked, just start soaping him up. <laughs> it was so funny. I, I love I love the Burt Reynolds sequence and the Anne Bancroft sequence. I mean, the whole movie's great, but those two are my favorite. And Bank, out of all the cameos, Anne Bancroft is in there the longest. And that was, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Well, that's because that Mel was, Brooks is a wife guy. And I mean, right. to be fair, if your wife was Anne Bancroft, you would be a wife guy too. And that was probably my favorite scene in the movie. Him, mm-hmm. him, him and her, actually him with all, her with all three of them. Burt Reynolds is technically in this movie for less than five minutes, but it's very memorable and he's, he's very fun. He makes fun of himself. You can tell that he's having fun in this movie. That's why I enjoy this movie so much is just how, how much fun everyone appeared to be having. Okay, I'm gonna. Um, so I'm gonna ask you this. It appears that everybody had fun, except for James Caan. Or maybe uh, it felt to me like James Caan didn't look like he wanted to be in the movie. Do you oh, think that's? Th- th- or do you think, think James, I'm reading that wrong? I don't think James Caan's ever been a happy man a day in his life. It just looked like he didn't want to be there, and I was just wondering if that was the way he was playing the character. There was no reason for him to be in this movie because. Mel Brooks got all the stars to basically do it for free. They got paid like $300 a day, which was much lower than their rate. They did it because they wanted to be in this film, and I'm sure it was a favor to Mel Brooks. So he's not doing it for a payday, James Caan. So I'm guessing that's the way he played. It just came off like he didn't want to be in this movie. Everybody else looked like they were in in on the joke and winking at themselves, except for James Caan. Well... James Conn always kind of struck me as someone who took himself too seriously anyway. So maybe that's the case. Maybe he didn't necessarily want to be there, but he, he had to. Maybe he maybe he wanted the money for like a summer home or something. He did it, but didn't have fun because James <laughs> Conn take. I don't know. He seems like a really miserable person. And you know what the best part about this podcast is? Usually in my podcasts, I edit in parts of the movie. I don't have to do that for this movie because there was one word spoken in this movie one word Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of the people that mel brooks tries to get for a silent film is marcel marceau and he asks him and marcel marceau goes no and it's the only line it's the only line spoken in the show it's only word spoken in the entire movie by a mind to me that's just brilliant oh of course and the um the follow-up to that joke is also very funny. What did he say? I don't know. I don't speak French. <laughs> <laughs> the pacing in this is excellent. It's not too long. They have a very high joke to minute ratio, which makes it, which makes it really flow because a premise like this, you couldn't pad out to like a two and a half hour epic at all. No, the movie comes it's actually comes in under an hour and a half, which is yeah. just, which is a perfect amount of time. And you're right. It's like sometimes we just cut away for like a, a 
10 second bit and then that's that bit is over and we've cut to another bit the bits range from 10 seconds to four or five minutes depending on the scene and it's a perfectly flowing movie i agree with you 100 percent. it's yeah like nothing overstays its welcome like even the the wedding cake scene it worked because it was short it was very short it got the point across they were fantasizing about their wedding in a way that is very much suited for the style of movie that they are they're parodying in the time frame but it didn't go on long it wasn't a full-blown number so so mel brooks is trying to make a movie for the studio so the studio won't go under and this conglomerate it's what's the name of it i forgot the name um oh something in devour yeah uh yeah dev- something in devour god damn it Anyway, Hang on, this... I can look this up. Okay. I can look this up. Engulf and Devour. Engulf and Devour is this conglomerate that just wants to buy the studio. So if this movie makes money, this studio will not have to sell out to them. So they sent Bernadette Peters to seduce Mel Fun, played by Mel Brooks. I love the pun on his name where she... She's finished dancing and she's like, which one of you men here is fun? And they all like raise their hands and start crowding her. <laughs> that was that I, was a fun bit. I honestly think he named that character fun just for that one bit. I um, honestly think that. Yeah. Oh, I mean, so did <laughs> I, but it was a great bit. So So she is sent to uh, uh seduce and pretend to fall in love with Mel Fun and get him to not make the movie. She really she ends up eventually falling in love with him for real. And they fantasize about getting married. So they're on this giant wedding cake. And they're actually kicking frosting around. And it was... It was fun. It was very Ethel Merman. All right. So let me... I have I, li- I like Bernadette Peters. I have nothing against Bernadette Peters. I thought she did a fabulous job. But I'm wondering why Madeline Kahn didn't play this role in this movie. I'm assuming if, she, if Madeline Kahn is not in this movie, it's because she had a conflict. A schedule conflict. I'm going to have to agree with you on that because, like I said, I love Bernadette Peters in this role, but I would have loved to see Madeline Kahn do this role. Granted, I'm not going to complain because, I, like you said, I love Bernadette Peters. I thought she was perfectly cast. Um, she is, I know, I know that she's very well known for being a singer and dancer, but um, she deserves a lot of recognition and props for, for her physical comedy chops. Um, the scene where they're frolicking in the meadow and it turns into an actual race. It's so funny. Have you ever seen Pennies from Heaven? She's excellent in uh-uh. that with Steve Martin. No, I haven't. It's on my list, though. But, like, I know that my generation mostly sees her as, like, a Broadway performer. And you got to give and- props to Bernadette. She, she is a singer that signed up to do a silent movie. <laughs> well, again, because she's got great um, physical comedy chops. Why not? She's speaking more than gra- just a singer and dancer. She's a fantastic comedian. And speaking everybody of... This was. Everybody this was. Uh, and, and speaking of except women James with Con. excellent... James Conn. Uh, James Conn is a miserable son of a bitch. He really seems like one, actually. And Bancroft. She oh, did a bunch of excellent physical comedy mm-hmm. in this. Like and her I think- eyes, her scene with Marty Feldman. Where they're passing the eyes back and forth. 
Carl Reiner taught her to do that. She didn't know how to do that. And Carl Reiner, I don't know how you teach somebody to cross their eyes, but apparently Carl Reiner taught taught her how to do that. That's awesome. Uh, but there's a scene where uh, Brooks and Feldman and Dom DeLuise are playing these flamingo dancers and Anne Bancroft, she walks in and she's this ultimate vamp. She's surrounded by these young men in tuxedos and Mel Brooks starts dancing with her and he dips her and he keeps smacking her head on tables, mm-hmm. which I've seen that bit stolen. A lot of the bits I've seen in this, I have seen redone over the years. A lot of bits from this movie have been, I don't want to say stolen, maybe I say lifted. <laughs> it may not even necessarily be lifted. They may just be classic bits because remember, um, Mel Brooks was very, very, very well, is because he's still alive very heavily influenced by vaudeville. And that is very much kind of a vaudevillian slapstick style. I mean, they may not necessarily even be ripping him off. It may just be a classic, a classic joke or visual. But yes, but when he dips her and her head hits the table and you hear this clunk and it's glorious. And and then they, they, they go to carry her out and they slam her head on a brick wall and she, she knocks herself out. They knock her unconscious. I love that. I love Anne Bancroft. Have you seen To Be or Not To Be with those two? Uh Uh-uh. Oh, you got to watch that. That's a great movie. I will add it to my list. Because this is the first time they worked together, Anne Bancroft and uh, Mel Brooks. That actually answered my next question. He produced The Elephant Man, and she starred in that movie. But this is the first time they shared screen time in a movie. And then they do it again in To Be or Not To Be, which I believe is 84. 82 or 84, right around in there. That's awesome. But she didn't get to do nearly as much comedy as she probably should have. No, probably not. Like most of these actors in here, they have not... Most of them are not known for doing comedies. So I think they had to relish the fact that even though it's a small part for them, uh, Burt Reynolds has done comedies, but... Like, Paul Newman is not known for doing comedies. James Caan, definitely not known for doing comedies. So they all had to relish doing this doing this fun movie. Even Marcel Marceau. Even Marcel Marceau. So one of the people they get is Liza Minnelli. And there's a scene where they're in the commissary to sneak in. Dom DeLuise, Marty Feldman, and Mel Brooks have all dressed up in medieval armor. And they can't move, and they start falling. They just start collapsing and falling all around Liza Minnelli. I think that's actually them in the armor. I don't know. It was a great sequence, though. And one of them actually fell on Liza Minnelli. Oh, that's funny. And she rolled with it. My The first thing that I ever saw Liza Minnelli in was uh, Arrested Development. Oh, really? hmm And she was hilarious in that. So, funny story. My dad is actually what my dad had. My dad actually met her and said that she was awful. He's like, but she's damn, she's damn talented and liked her in, uh, uh, what's it called? Arrested Development. But he's like, just awful person, miserable person. (laughs) But I guess she hides it better than James (laughs) Conn. So one of the, the, the head of the studio is Sid Caesar. Mm -hmm. And Mel Brooks wrote, when Sid Caesar was on television, he was on your show of shows in the 1950s, and Mel Brooks wrote for him. 
And I think Mel Brooks is just paying him back. by He put him in this movie. He's also in History of the Worlds Part 1. I, I love the fact that Mel Brooks, the people that he admired and the people that he looked up to, he never forgot them and he put them in his movies Yeah, when, when he could. That's something that I love about Mel Brooks is that he's not ashamed of the things that influence him. And inspire him. He wears his influences on his sleeve very proudly. Okay, so it's funny that you use that term, influences he wears on his sleeve, because there's a scene where they drive past this tailor, and it's modern design, and the guy wear a guy's wearing a suit, but it's like it's only half a suit, and it's half mm. a pants. And the tie is cut. That comedian is Harry Ritz from the Ritz brothers and Mel Brooks has said several times that the Ritz brothers not only were a huge influence on him, but Harry Ritz was the funniest man that ever lived. Mel Brooks has said this on more than one occasion. So the man that he thought was the funniest man ever, he put in his movie. That's so sweet. (laughs) I love that. I believe this was his last movie for Harry Ritz. Well, Hey, what a swan song, eh? Right. And Henny Youngman shows up in it. And, uh, you know, Henny Youngman, the king of the one-liners. No. I don't know who that is. He's the guy who had the fly in his soup. Waiter, there's a fly in my soup. Oh, gotcha. That was also a great bit. So the bit we're talking about, we have to describe the bits. Right. So there's this big car chase, and this exterminator's driving around with a giant fly on top of his truck. He hits the curb, the fly goes flying off and lands on this table, and this guy's like, waiter, there's a fly in my soup. <laughs> and it's so great. It's such a it's such a fun take on a very classic joke. Did Coca-Cola sponsor this movie? Or I mean, was... probably. They w- I don't think legally they would have been able to use it otherwise. You see Coca-Cola. Dom DeLuise is constantly drinking Coca-Cola at the end of the movie. Mel Brooks and Dom DeLuise use a Coca-Cola machine like a cannon and start shooting Coke cans at the bad guys. Yeah, I don't think legally they could have gotten away with that without permission. So yeah, they yeah you're right. Did, but it was a very funny take on sponsorships in movies. It's very and also Hershey's, because there's a scene where Tom DeLuise is eating a six-foot Hershey bar. Oh, yeah. Speaking and of, this... like, Tom DeLuise and eating, the scene where um, he's like, I want a blueberry pie. And they get a blueberry pie, and he, uh, it accidentally goes flying and hits a, uh, a police officer. That, that is a great little visual gag, too. Loved it. It's out of nowhere. They're driving around, and he's like, yeah. I'm hungry. Get me a blueberry pie. And they cut, and they get a blueberry pie. He hits up Because they're driving around in this very cool, I believe it's an English sports car. But it's this convertible yellow very cool looking looks like a 1920s Mm -hmm. so even though this movie is set in modern times 1976 they are driving around in a car that you probably would have seen in an actual silent movie it's probably the just they established that um mel fun had previously ruined his career from with all of his drinking so it would not surprise me if that was like the car that Mel Fun bought during the height of his career before things went downhill for him. For just a very simple, silly film, just to have that little, all the little, the, just a little backstory of, because mm-hmm. we know nothing, we know nothing about Marty Feldman and Dom DeLuise. 
They are just there with Mel Brooks. They are basically blank slates. We know we nothing really, about them. And we don't really need to for the jokes we, to work. We don't need to. But we know that Mel Fun used to be an alcoholic. And we need to know that. That's the only thing we need to know about him. And that is the only thing we know about him. And that is the only thing we know about him. And that he, he was, that he used to be a direct he used to be a yeah. big time director. Because Mel Brooks is walking around in a in a captain, he's wearing a captain's hat uh-huh. and a blue blazer, and Marty Feldman is walking around like in this World War One bomber attire. Yeah, not only that, when they go to the hospital, the gift that he's carrying is an is an RAF air, yes. uh, airplane, which was so funny. And then Dom DeLuise is he's dressed in this hat and this sweater vest. So there's no rhyme or reason. It's never explained. And a, very why. Fetching, a very fetching scarf, too. And the weird thing is, the movie starts off, because most silent movies have a, you know, have a music track behind them. Yeah. The movie, the first 45 seconds to a minute of this movie, it's, it's dead silent. Mm-hmm. So you think maybe... Maybe there's something wrong because I know it's a silent movie, but you very rarely get dead silence on screen. Right. There's usually music or background or something. So it's so it's really it's really weird uh, when the movie because the movie starts with dead silence and there's this pregnant woman that they take to the hospital, and that was Dom DeLuise's wife in real life. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. I don't know if she was really pregnant. I mean, it's a, it was funny regardless. And then the music kicks in and and the credits, even the credits are low key. Mm-hmm. They're they're just black letters on on colorful background backgrounds. There's nothing fancy. There's nothing fancy about it. It's like credits you would have seen in a movie uh from the 1920s or 30s. This With the very minimal of the, of the the credits where they they show the the cameos, like Burt Reynolds, there's a, those are video credits. Right. So at the end of the movie, and this goes back to me thinking that James Caan doesn't doesn't want to be in the movie. All the all the cameos, you know, they all turn to the camera and smile and give it a wink or this, and this, and James Caan just could not look more bored or more disinterested in doing that. Yeah, I know. James Conn seems like a like a miserable person. Now, uh, uh, one guest that we haven't talked about yet is Paul Newman. And I don't know if you know, but in real life, Paul Newman loved race cars. He actually owned a race car. Oh, he yeah, owned... that, I knew that. There's a scene where Paul Newman has broken. His leg is not really broken, but for the movie, it's broken. And he's in this little motorized scooter wheelchair. And they start chasing, so they get motorized wheelchairs, and they start chasing him around the hospital where he's where he's staying. And another thing I want to bring up is the sound effects in this movie are mm-hmm. perfect. Oh, God, the the um the running joke of the like getting his hands stuck in the um with the fingers crossed pose, and then it right. it, it traveling. From via handshakes and a little springy noise was so fun. I mean, there's of course big sound effects, but there's this little minimalistic sound effects that 
are just perfect. I don't know if you're a Three Stooges fan, but if somebody just slapped somebody, it wouldn't be funny. But with an over-exaggerated sound effect, or when you poke somebody in the eyes and you go, boom, It's the wind-up. It's the wind-up. And it sort of takes the edge off of, you know, somebody getting poked in the eyes or somebody getting slapped with this over-exaggerated sound effect. I, one of the reasons the Three Stooges are so popular are because of their sound effects. Right. That One of the reasons this movie works so well is because of its sound. So whoever did the sound effects or whoever did the sound design in this movie, uh, kudos. They nailed it. It was perfect. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. There's a recurring gag. Whenever he signs somebody for a movie, we see this newspaper guy and these guys come along and they throw the newspaper at him and it hits him on the head. And then we get the headline. Because usually when you get those headlines, you get that spitting paper. And, and yeah. the paper. This was a unique way and a funny way to do the headline gag differently. No, and that was fun. And, and it, it also, I was noting to myself while watching it, it follows a three-beat escalation structure perfectly. We, we talked about the F-word joke. There's a scene where all three of them are hugging, where Dom DeLuise and, and Marty Feldman and, and Mel Brooks are hugging, and these two women walk past him, and then we get the picture card that says, you know, yeah. F. And then they do it again with James Kahn. My comedy mind was thinking, oh. okay, it, they should do it one more time, yeah, because comedy comes in threes, and they didn't. Yeah, that... That that bothered me. Like, obviously, the, that joke does not age well at all. No, but, not at but, all. But structurally, structurally, I was like, where's my third beat, guys? Structurally, beat. we need... This I sounds need word. Structurally, we needed a, another... We needed a third F-bomb. And we're not talking about the word fuck. That's not no, what we're talking about. No, so. and I mean, uh, we're not. We're, we're talking about a... Uh, a, a, British, a British cigarette. Yeah, let's let's say that. But I, you know what? Can I leave? Can I? Can I? Um, like use this as a segue to talk about Mel Brooks's work on a whole. Yes, on the whole. Please. Okay. So we've talked about how. Oh, Mel Brooks can't make some of these movies that he's made. Uh, well, here's the thing. Mel Brooks, especially with Blazing Saddles, did actually work with Richard Pryor and other black comedians to make sure that the jokes punched up and hit the right people uh, and satirize the people that he was supposed to be satirizing in a, because Mel Brooks did not want to hurt the black community at the time, which is a role that we refer to now as a sensitivity reader. reader. That is an actual uh, like career. Mel Brooks could absolutely make Blazing Saddles today because Mel Brooks is still the sort of person who wants to make sure that his work still fits the, still hits the right targets. He hasn't made a swing into, um, well, let's just make jokes at the expense of the black community right now. The, things haven't really changed for him. So yeah, he could make it now. He would just work with different black comedians to make sure that the, that the jokes hit in a contemporary context in a way that punches up, which is why he is such, you know, so much of his work still holds up is because, yeah, he has some jokes like the, you know, the homophobic ones in this one. And there's a very, uh, like a one-off joke about how I hope she's not a, uh, you know, I hope she's not a female impersonator. 
again, this was, I'm not saying it's, it's a good joke or it's the right thing to do, but it is, it, it was in the seventies at the time it would have probably been considered acceptable. But Mel Brooks is a savvy enough comedian to know that it's not acceptable now and would adapt accordingly because he's adaptable. That's part of why he is such an enduring figure. It was the same with uh, David Bowie. David Bowie changed with the times. Mel Brooks changes with the times. And if you watch how his comedy evolves, it's very present in his work. So yeah, Mel Brooks actually could make Blazing Saddles today. Mel Brooks could also make Silent Movie today. Because if he if he suddenly said, I'm remaking this with Jack Black or something, he would just take that joke out. The stuff that, that, don't, that doesn't work now. Because that's how Mel Brooks's comedy has worked since the beginning. So I feel like people that are ranting about how people would censor Mel Brooks these days are not getting it right. Because Mel Brooks wouldn't, really, he's so careful, he wouldn't put anything out there that doesn't hit the mark. Well... You are Blazing Saddles is an anti-racism movie. Right. He made that. He made that because he he was he thought of the story where these people would not accept this black man. It just made him angry. Right. And all and all the humor does punch at the bigots in that movie. Right. Exactly. But it was also in the comedy it was in the comedy stylings at the time. If he were to make it now, he would make it in the comedy stylings of our time and it would still punch up. The flavor would be different because it's a different time period. Mel Brooks knows, again, Mel Brooks knows how to adapt. However, I still think they would, there would be people out there hating on it just to hate on it without yeah. knowing the, without knowing the context. Yeah. But you I, know, I, I spend enough time, I spend enough time in progressive circles and I spend enough on time online to, to say with confidence, do you know who those people would largely be? They would be white people, probably white teenagers, trying to put on a show for the black community for the most part. Because I'm relatively certain that that Mel Brooks would write this with the, the black community's satisfaction in mind. The people that would be the most offended are the ones that are putting on a show, not the ones who genuinely care about being anti-racist. Right. There's always going to be somebody offended by something that they don't know. They're just going to take a stand to to make themselves look better in somebody's eyes right. and but not the problem really understand. Is, the problem is, is that when, when something like that happens, while for the most part, those conversations would be driven by white, quote unquote, allies who were putting on a show, uh, the backlash will m- mostly hit the black community. And they would say, well, look at what the black community, look at what black critics think and look at how offended they are when, again, Mel Brooks would make sure that the black community is not the one that's being hurt. <laughs> So, did you did you story. know that Richard that Richard Pryor was supposed to play the Cleavon Little role? I did. And this is once again, this is a Bernadette Peters, Madeline Kahn. I loved Cleavon Little in that movie, but I would just love to have seen what Richard Pryor would have. And fortunately, we've got uh, we got four other movies where he teamed up with Gene Wilder. Yeah, apparently they didn't get along very well in real life. Really, I did not know that. I, I thought reading. they did. Get along. So did I, but I was reading that apparently they didn't get along as they as well as they people thought but they were consummate professionals and were able to work well together despite that well they are they were two totally different people as well right in but real life i I'm, I'm a fan of them both i am a fan of them both as well also too yeah uh but anyway thank you for listening to my rant and my spiel about mel brooks it has been a sticking point with me for a long time with people talking about how 
oh, Mel Brooks couldn't couldn't get away with any of this because they, I don't think they fundamentally understand how Mel Brooks's comedic sensibilities work. Mel Brooks didn't set out to offend people by using the N-word. Mel Brooks set out to anger racists. Yeah, he set out to educate people on racism. Yeah, yeah he set out to, now that doesn't necessarily work with today's sensibilities because for one thing that has become very much a cliche and a lot of white comedians who aren't working with black comedians would be like oh see i'm saying it air there and see it's okay if i say it because i'm educating people but that time has already passed it's not relevant anymore it's already been done and it's been done by people very carefully like mel brooks it's no longer educational or shocking like it was in the 70s well you said that mel brooks would adapt and i agree on my other podcast the dan Aykroyd podcast i did a episode with our friend steph de wagoner and we did an episode of saturday night live that featured melton burl and melton burl was 70 at the time when he did saturday night live and he's one of those old jack benny bob hope you know he came up during the 50s during television so saturday night live was the hip comedy show at the time and he was so out of touch. And he was doing jokes that were offensive. He burped and he goes, wow, I have so much gas. Arabs have been following me around. Oh. So that's somebody who didn't adapt. I believe Mel Brooks is a person that can adapt. And it's like today, we're both in comedy. Some comics have adapted, some have not. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've adapted mine and I have some sketches that are... Um, that touch on some extremely dark subject matters. Um, some of it is based on my own life experiences, but the ones that aren't, I have a sensitivity reader. She reads it to make sure that once it goes to perform, it hits people who are supposed to be hit without innocent people being caught in the crossfire. And you know what? It's funnier for it. You have to adapt. And you have think, to adapt. And Mel Brooks adapts. Um, another one that's been adapting is Bobcat Goldthwait. I love, I've worked with Bobcat. He's great, and he's genuinely a nice guy. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And that's but he's he's been very vocal about how he he wants to adapt his comedy because he doesn't want to hurt people. George Carlin was another one. Like I love George Carlin. George Carlin was actually the first probably say what you want about my dad, but the very first stand-up comedian that I was ever introduced to via my dad was George Carlin. And George Carlin adapted. There's a really great video where he's talking about how um, how he tries to be careful to make sure that his comedy does not hurt people who are already being hurt. Um, you know, he punches up at, at Catholics a lot because they are very much in power, for God's sakes. Catholicism has its own city-state. It is one of the wealthiest religions that there is. They, they hold a lot of political power. That's punching up. But George Carlin also mentioned that that's why he doesn't make fun of Jewish people, because historically they have a lot of power taken from them. And a lot of George Carlin's stand-up still holds up today because he was careful. Well, in my stand-up, I usually make fun of myself. 
And like I said, I love people that make fun of themselves. That's why I love this movie, Silent Movie. Right. Because everybody, everybody in here, except for the miserable SOB, James Kahn, is making is having fun with themselves as celebrities. I punch it myself, so that way. But I did actually have a woman who came up after me came up to me after a show one night, and was mad for me for making fun of myself. So she was actually offended for me because I was making too much fun of me. I make fun of myself a lot. I was bullied mercilessly as a kid, and I learned how to make fun of myself as a defense mechanism because when you make fun of yourself so much, the bullies are like, well, we're bored with you now. (laughs) There's nothing we can tell you that you're not saying about yourself. Now, what that did to me on a mental health basis was not good and not healthy. Oh, no, yeah, um, I'm screwed. I'm screwed up beyond repair. Yeah, but... um, but you know that's that's what I learned. Um, but like I make fun of myself all the time. I'm I'm a if you ever read my Twitter, I'm a parody of myself, and I don't care. Oh, it's fun. Well, you you've read my Facebook. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm all about making fun such of me, and I make fun of you. Right, <laughs> and I love it when people make fun of me. Well, in fairness, you pay me to make fun of you. I do pay you. We've gone off on a tangent, a great yes, tangent. But, but we're rant coming over. Back. I just wanted to get that off my chest because I have been so angry about people using Mel Brooks as their excuse to be like, comedians should be able to do and say whatever they want without consequences. And I'm like, Mel Brooks is the worst example that you could pick because Mel Brooks gives so much of a shit about not hurting people. Well, what you said right there, comics can absolutely say whatever they want, but they do have to suffer the consequences for what they say. Right, and that was Bobcat Goldthwait's entire point, too. Say whatever you want, but there's consequences, and a lot of people just don't like the idea of there being consequences. There's been consequences, I mean, you know this, I don't want to talk about it publicly, but, like, you have personally seen me having consequences for my comedy not hitting properly, and how I learned, and I adapted from that situation. You know, because that's the right thing to do. If you've hurt someone, you learn about how you don't hurt anyone else. You know what else the right thing is to do? Watch Silent Movie. See how I brought it all around? See how I brought it back? Yeah, I I think it's an overlooked um, piece of of Mel Brooks' filmography. And I think some of it has to do with the fact that it's not streaming anywhere. It's not easy to find. I think people get hung up on... Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, but there's so much more, and the producers, but there's so much more to Mel Brooks. There's so much more. There's Spaceballs. Love Spaceballs. Love Space. Yeah, I loved. I love Spaceballs too. Spaceballs is so good. And this was his first starring, because he was he did um, the producers, which he had a cameo in, and then he did. What came first, Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein? They were both in seven. They were both in seventy four. Let me see. Raising well, Saddles any- was was August fifth, and then let's see, Young Frankenstein was December fifteenth. That's came- my birthday. It came out on Aww. my birthday. Congratulations! Uh, so yeah, Blazing Saddles came first, but not not by a very long. So he actually did 12, so he did 12 chairs, which he didn't have a part in, and then he did the producers, which he had a cameo, then he did Blazing Saddles, which he had a cameo, oh, now a little more than a cameo, he had a small bit part, 
Then he did Young Frankenstein, where he did not appear. And then he did Silent Movie. So this was his first starring, after doing four films, this was his first starring role in a movie. And he, yeah, and he doesn't speak a word, but that's... There's a bunch of scenes where all three of them are walking together and they're all lock and step and they all do a little, you know, a little jump, a little, you know, and a little side jig. They all mm-hmm. do it at the same time. And it's just perfect. I'm just wondering how many times they had to rehearse that and how many times they had to do that just to get it perfect. And because it looks great whenever they're walking together, it's it's like they're one person walking together. That's how it really well... is. They jump in time to the music. It's yeah. really fun. And it's really weird because Marty Feldman is this rail thin comedian, and Dom DeLuise he's he's big in this movie. He's not as big as he as he got, but he's he's a bigger man in this movie. So the, it's once again it sort of reminded me of the Three Stooges in a way. We had different body types, mm-hmm. and they were all distinguished by the way they dressed. I can't recommend this movie enough. I yeah. If, especially this, if you are a Mel Brooks fan. I think it goes very overlooked. If you are able to track it down, get the DVD. It's worth it. The library probably has it, so you don't have to spend any money. It's not streaming anywhere. Um, I so. have the Mel Brooks collection, which is, if, you, if you're into Mel Brooks, I would say pick up that Mel Brooks collection because it has a bunch of his movies on there, and a, there's a lot of extras on there. It's it's so expensive, so I'm probably gonna wait for it to to I found be used. It, I found it at a, a Goodwill for nine bucks. So what? Oh my god! Yeah. I uh, yes, oh, wow. I would not. I got a if it was full price, I would not have purchased it. But I found it at a Goodwill for nine bucks. So okay. I had to. Thank you, because like I need it. I need it. <laughs> like I need oxygen. Because again, I love Mel Brooks. Uh oh. Also, another like just kind of semi-off topic. One of my favorite uh, Mel Brooks roles was as the king, not the king, the um, the president in uh, in Spaceballs. I just love Mel Brooks, period. Mel Brooks, it, like, along with Space Ghost Coast to Coast and Monty Python, I think Mel Brooks has probably had the biggest influence on my sense of comedy. Mel Brooks and Monty Python, I watched The Holy Grail when I was too young to understand it. And I watched Blazing Saddle. And they were both, oh, both those movies are 74. I just realized that. I didn't watch them in 74. I'm not that old. But when I did watch them, I was way too young to get all the jokes in Monty Python, Wait, The Holy Grail. I guess, I guess you're younger than I think you are then. If you I'm were. 50, if you, I'm 53. I thought you were older than that. Yeah. I, thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome, that. I guess. So yes, I would have been six when those movies came out. Okay, but when I but when I did watch them, I was too young to gr- to grasp the the subtle humor in Monty Python and Mel Brooks. In and fairness, when I watched them when I watched them again when I was older, I'm like, oh, now I get it. I will say, in fairness, about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, it's not that subtle. <laughs> it's like not the biggest- that. Some of the biggest subtleties would be, for example, um, like just general knowledge of uh, of British mythology and culture and uh, the anarcho-syndicalist uh, jokes. 
But like, even even if you don't know diddly shit about anarcho syndicalism, uh, the 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 help help I'm being repressed. Just the the way that Michael Palin delivers his his rant is hilarious, regardless of whether or not you fully understand what he's talking about. Right, but when but a ten year old is not like when I saw that I was I you know ten or eleven or twelve. The knights who say knee and we're we're I'm Eric Eric the Shrubber. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm not going to get the full extent of that humor at twelve as I did when I watched it when I was you know eighteen or nineteen. Humor is not subtle, but it is smart, and it was smarter than I was at twelve. Yeah, I mean, some of it has, uh, you know, a lot of the joke is intentionally trying to subvert the the genre tropes of the english myth and uh and arthurian legends uh so by making it very silly and having arthur be a figure of ridicule instead of yeah like like it 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 works on multiple levels because american from what i understand like in general uh americans tend to like holy grail and British people tend to like uh, Life of Brian more. The point of Monty Python was making fun of the fact that British people sometimes take themselves way too seriously. <laughs> so I think I think poking at things like British myths did bother people because, you know, it's, it's not a theocracy anymore. The U.S. is a theocracy, but we'll get into that another day. Yeah, um, we're all you know, we're already on another tangent. Yeah. We're on Monty Python the, now. The Americans are already well. If is is um, Burt Reynolds is not in any Monty Python movies, is he? Damn it, he's not. Well, but, damn. but he was a he was a huge Benny Hill fan. But I think that's as close as he got. Well, uh, when you when you do your Monty Python podcast, I would like to be a guest on that. I will definitely. So I can't uh, I can't commit to doing a full blown Monty Python uh, podcast. I can't pick up another podcast, but I can be a guest because I love Monty Python. I love Monty Python so much, and also I love Mel Brooks so much. Bringing it back around. So this being the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast, we can both agree that the the scene with Burt Reynolds where they're tracking down is one of the high points of the movie. Oh yeah, it's great, I, and I I like. I like Burt Reynolds, even in movies that I don't like with Burt Reynolds in them. Burt Reynolds is not the problem. Burt Reynolds is never the problem in a movie. Burt Reynolds is one of the most likable. He was one of the most likable men, likable people ever. In Did you any, ever meet even, him? I never met him. I know people that had met him, and everybody everybody had good things to say about him. I feel bad for him. I know he had a lot of uh, you know turmoil near the you know near the end of his life with finances and all that i feel bad but he's it seems like he never lost his sense of humor and that's the one thing i love about burt Reynolds. once again he he you know he blatantly wore a toupee but he never he never hid the fact that he wore a toupee uh he made fun of himself for wearing a toupee he's like it's like women women put on makeup i put on a toupee that was just the way he he thought about it and i think that was that was great not really any shame of it. He also made fun of himself uh, in, if you ever watched uh, Archer. Yes. He made yeah, fun of himself, fun himself in Archer. Archer. Yeah. 
there's a great uh, My Name is Earl episode with uh, Burt Reynolds. And then there's a, another one where Norm MacDonald is p- playing Burt Reynolds' son as Aww. his impression of Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Oh, that would have been, I need to watch that. Also, RIP Norm MacDonald. I also uh, heard that, I also knew people that had worked with him and said he was a really nice person and really fun. All right. So both of us highly recommend yeah. si- Silent Movie. Uh, Meredith, what do you want to promote? So I, I do actually have something that's not under NDA that I can promote. Um, so uh, at the end of the month, the first... We are recording this in the middle of March. So this is March 15th or 16th, uh, what, 21st. Okay, a little past the middle. Uh, so we're recording this in at the 21st of March. I'm sorry, so go ahead. Yeah, uh, okay, so it'll be out probably I mean, in... in Let's see, at the end of the month, so next week this will be out, so it'll probably be out by the time this episode airs. Um, So I actually uh, did the narrative development and uh, co-wrote a visual novel. My very first, I mean, it's not the first visual novel that I have been involved with, but it's the first one that I've been involved with as more than a voice actress. I do have a very small voice acting role. But um, most of my contributions to this particular uh, game uh, were in the writing department, actually. So uh, it is called Portrait of a Texas Family. And it is about a, um, a family who, after finding out that um, the Texas governor uh, has issued a, an edict saying that families of transgender children who affirm their transgender children um, will be investigated for child abuse. It, it talks about the the fear that they have trying to put together a defense for themselves. Um, we obviously, speaking of things like trying to be sensitive and thoughtful, we did actually uh, do a ton of research, talk to people, hired sensitivity readers to make sure that this story is not tragedy porn, um, that it hits the it hits the mark and holds the right people responsible. Uh, there are multiple uh, trans and non-binary people that are involved in the process of making this game. We are extremely proud of how it turned out. Um, it is made by Lookout Drive Games uh, as part of the Nano Reno 2022 uh, Game Jam competition. Um, it's going to be free to play. Uh, and we really hope you enjoy it. We've put a lot of, there's a lot of really super talented people involved in this. It is Lookout Drive's uh, first uh, visual novel and first game. And I actually know what their next one is going to be. And it's also very, very exciting. Uh, but we're, yeah, very proud to be presenting that. Uh, look for it. Portrait of a Texas Family. And I play one of the cashiers. <laughs> but for the most part, my contribution was, was um, I did, I co-wrote it. With uh, Robert Pagat, the director. Uh, we'll get the we'll get the link from you, and I'll put the link oh, in the description. I mean, where there, find yeah, it. there's not a link yet because it's not been released. We're in development, but it'll be out next. Yes, week. but by the time this comes out, oh, there yeah, probably yeah. will be a link. So I will get it yeah. from you before I post um, this podcast. Yeah, we'd like to use it to educate. Speaking of educating people, we'd like to use it to educate people about what the families of transgender children are going through right now in Texas, and addressing some of the myths regarding. Um, healthcare for transgender children. For example, a lot of people are like, oh, but surgery and hormones. That is actually not what healthcare looks like for transgender children at all. Um, For the most part, 
the care that they receive when they are very young is actually about just affirming them, letting them wear the clothes they want to wear, wear their hair the way they want to wear, behave the way they want to behave. It is all social. And that is something that we, so we, we are very concerned with making sure that we present facts, not myths. So um, if this is something that you want to learn more about, if it's an issue that you want to show your support of or that you want to yourself show to people and educate them on what it's like, um, we, we think that, that games have the potential to teach empathy. And this is what we're trying to accomplish here. And we're very proud of the work that we're doing. That also that sounds fantastic. I'm Thank I'm you. I'm so proud of you for for doing that and Thanks. being a part I, of that. Yeah, it's been an honor. Um, thank you to Rob and the Lookout, uh, the Lookout Drive Games team for this. Um, very, like I said, very proud, very honored uh, to be a part of this. And I hope that I hope that this is something that people will respond to. I can't and, think of ending uh, the podcast on such a higher note than that so that is that's a great way to yeah. end this podcast. well and I'm, i also kind of want to mention too it's not depressing it, it the game itself is is one of hope and love so i just want to also put that out there um we don't we don't make it to depress we make it to educate but the very core of the game thematically is love and family and trying to find hope fantastic i love it thanks yeah that's why i've disappeared for the past month <laughs> You're back, and you've been a guest on my podcast. I want to thank Meredith for doing this podcast. And thank you for will... having me on, Scott. I always uh, love talking to you about movies. I've, I'm starting a new podcast, and uh, I can use you on that. We'll do Monty Python on that one. I'll give Ooh. you more information when that becomes. Wait, is that the one that I've already recorded the? Uh... Yes. Oh, you nice intros. So yeah, I've recorded with... the intros for those two. Let me know when it's live so I can put it on my resume. <laughs> I will absolutely. Okay. And this has been another episode of the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast. Once again, Meredith Nudo, thank you for doing this. And we'll see everybody here next time. Bye-bye. To support this podcast, please go to www.patreon.com slash Scott White and give what you're able. If you're listening on iTunes, please give a review. This should help people find the podcast when they're searching. Uh, no matter what services you use to listen, please leave feedback. We always want to improve. Thank you for listening to the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence In restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone has been a Cross the Streams Media Podcast.